Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, we are in Hebrews and we're in Hebrews chapter 6. We're continuing. Last week we... We looked at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. The first three verses of Hebrews chapter 6 really tie in with the, uh, the last verses, four or five verses of chapter 5. So we, we looked at that together. And it was very important as we get into uh, this portion, I, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, uh, to identify last week, which we did, Uh, Who is being addressed? Uh, This is one of the five warning passages. Uh, It started last week. It continues now. And Hebrews is addressing uh, Jewish people. It's a book to the Hebrews. Very uh, logical then. But there are two groups of people in view. Those who are truly saved, they possess the Lord and those who are not saved, but they profess the Lord. They say they're believers, but they're not. The five warning passages, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5 and 6, chapter 10 and 12, uh, the warning passages are telling them don't fall back into Mosaism, even more so than Judaism. Mosaism, the uh, Old Testament economy and what took place back there, uh, because you're in danger then of judgment. Come on to faith. And what we looked at last week, uh, we looked at the word, you know, that you might come on to perfection. And perfection is used 10 times in the book of Hebrews, three times of Jesus and his work of salvation, uh, seven times, if I remember correctly, talking about salvation. So perfection, the word perfection, as it is used in this book, speaks of salvation. Now, it picks up in in verses 4 through 8, but this section, probably this section is used more than any other, uh, perhaps any other portion of the Word of God to show or to prove that a Christian can lose their salvation. It's unfortunate because this is not what it's teaching, not at all what it's teaching, but especially 
in light of the numerous teachings in this book that salvation is eternal, that salvation is secure, that salvation is something one cannot lose whatsoever. So, along with the book of Romans, uh, perhaps there is no better book than this book, Hebrews, to establish the doctrine of eternal security. In other words, once you accept the Lord, if you're truly saved, you are always saved. Now remember, there are professing believers. They're not believers. They just give lip service to the Lord. That's been true down throughout history. And every good Bible church in the country and the world today of any size probably has people that are attending, especially in the United States, who are professing believers. But if one is truly born again, truly saved, you are eternally secure. You can't lose your salvation. And this book, Hebrews, uh, establishes that truth over and over and over again. There are probably more expressions of eternal assurance for the believer in Hebrews than in any other book in the Bible. Here are some of them. Hebrews 1.3. When he had him, by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He purged our sins, Jesus. But what drives this home and what he did is that phrase, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In the Old Testament economy, the priests could not sit down. Their work was never through. And so when it says that after he had purged our sins, got rid of all of them, he sat down, meaning the work is completed, the work is finished. There's nothing else to do. It's a work of finality. It's an expression of finality that forgiveness of sins has been accomplished. 5.9, Jesus became the author of eternal salvation. Well, if you can be saved today and lose your salvation in five years, ten years, whatever time frame you want to put on it, is Jesus then the author of eternal salvation? No, because it's then just temporal for you and whomever else. Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. If God says you have eternal salvation when you believe in Jesus, uh, either that is true or it's not true, and then God's a liar. I mean, you don't have a lot of wiggle room right there. And so if you think, you know, I, you know, there's so many verses. If you go outside of Hebrews, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. How long is everlasting? Everlasting. It's for, forever. And, and so either God is true or God is a liar. There's, there's no wiggle room. There's, there's no way to get around that. It's impossible for God to lie. So if you think there are passages that teach that a real child of God, a, a true believer, uh, can lose their salvation, uh, the difficulty, the problem is, is your understanding. Because you're not understanding the text correctly. In 725 of Hebrews, Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. To the extreme, to the outmost, to the uttermost. So if you come unto God by him, by Jesus, ultimately it's speaking about, 
he is able to save you to the nth degree, as it were, to the uttermost. Pretty secure. Nine twelve. but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So how long is our redemption? Eternal. Does, does eternal have an end point? No, it's eternal. <clears throat> 9.15, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance, the same thing. Hebrews 10.10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we are set apart, we are sanctified uh, by the offering of Jesus Christ once for all, forever. Set apart because of what Jesus did for eternity. We belong to him. <clears throat> 10, 12. But this man, after he offered one sacrifices, sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Again, that phrase of finality. It's complete. It's done. It's accomplished. Never to be done again. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And again, perfected is a term used for salvation. So by the offering of Jesus, how, how, how long have we been saved? For eternity, forever. Hebrews 10, 16, and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It's the new covenant. Write the law in your heart. And at that point, once you're a child of God, you've entered into that covenant, your, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That means they're as far apart as the east is from the west. You're eternally forgiven. Then the next verse. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We need to draw near to God in full assurance of our faith. If your faith is real, you should be fully assured that you belong to God for eternity, forever. And you can draw near to him. Hebrews 10, 13, um, I'm not sure what that's all about. But anyway, um, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the, how eternal is that, how long is that covenant? Everlasting. Through Jesus' blood, we have everlasting relationship. 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we'll look at that. Substance there is foundation, ground. Um, the Greek word has been used in, in ancient times actually to speak of a title deed. So when you have the title deed to something, you know, if you, do you have a mortgage on the home? Or, or do you owe money on a car? You have a loan on a car. You know, that vehicle, that home, that house 
actually belongs to the lender. But when you've paid that off, whether it be a vehicle, a home, whatever the case might be, you are then given the title deed. And that means you fully own this. It's been fully paid for. Well, that's the thought of substance in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the title deed, the foundation the, the, uh, of things hoped for. That title deed, by the way, is the Word of God. The foundation, the Word of God. Um, that we know that we are saved. Hebrews 7, 25 through 27, chapter 9, chapter 10, uh, he was sacrificed once for all that we would be saved once for all, once forever, in other words. So it's just redundant in this book. Redundant. And yet, many in the Christian world question the doctrine of eternal security. And possibly, the primary passage used to show that we can lose our salvation is Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. Have you ever had somebody uh, try to tell you that you're in danger of losing your salvation and you can lose your salvation based on this passage? Well, this is a very prominent portion of Scripture uh, that many say teaches that. If one believes this passage teaches that we can lose our salvation, and it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't. But if one believes this passage teaches that we can lose our salvation, then that person also must believe that person can never be saved again. Because later on it says, <clears throat> it starts, for it is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. So, Forget all, the, ball, all the, the, the words in between there. Look at verses 4 through 6. In verse 4, for it is impossible. Then look at verse 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. So if you want to believe that this passage is speaking of Christians, and Christians losing their salvation, then you also must believe that a Christian who falls into this camp and loses their salvation cannot be saved again because it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. But all these people or groups or whomever who will teach that this passage says you can lose your salvation will also tell you that that individual Christian can come back to the Lord and be saved again. Well, that's not what this says. It is impossible if they fall away to renew them again unto repentance. So you can't have it both ways. So let's look at verse 4, the bottom of page 1. For it is impossible if they shall fall away again, uh, fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Now, uh, here the writer is saying to these professing Jewish believers who need to leave the basics of Judaism and get saved that this can happen only if they have not yet become apostate, rejecting the truth of salvation in Messiah. In other words, if God permits. Remember the end of the lesson last week in verse, first three verses? Uh, 
let us go on to uh, per perfection, putting aside, and, in, and it listed a number of things, uh, uh, teachings, doctrines to put aside. All of those are the teachings that we find in Mosaism or, or the Old Testament. Uh, and, and so what God is saying, and at the end of that, if God permits. So it's a warning to professing believers, put this stuff aside. You know it need to come on to salvation. You need to be saved. And, but we're going to put all of those basics aside, God permitting, as we move on. Now, Kenneth Weiss says this. The choice must be made by these Hebrews between going back to the sacrifices or on to faith in Christ as high priest. But their spiritual declension, if persisted in, would result in their putting themselves beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit. This is implied in chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8, where they are warned that if they desire to hear the, verse, the voice of the Holy Spirit, they should not harden their hearts. The implication being clear that they would have no more desire to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. This shows that the, quote, impossibility of Hebrews 6, 4, and 6 resides in the condition of hearts, not the grace of God. <coughs> so the problem is not with God and his ability to save them. The problem is in the condition of the human heart and that type of thing. <clears throat> now, verse 6, and we'll look at this as we go down. Uh, if they shall fall away to renew them. Now, if obviously is, is a hypothetical word, uh, but he is not saying hypothetically, in other words, this can happen, but if it could happen, this is what would take place. No, the writer of Hebrews is addressing professing believers. And he's saying, if you come to that point that you reject all the light, all the truth that you have and go back to the old system, you will become apostate. You will have left the truth and you can never be saved. You weren't saved to begin with, but you can never be renewed on to repentance. So it's not hypothetical in that sense. It's a warning to these people. Now, Turn your page over. <clears throat> David Reagan, the pastor of Antioch Baptist Church, who I believe went home to be with the Lord, gives five standard interpretations of this passage that we're just going to look at rather quickly. Okay, he gives the standard interpretations of this passage. The first one that, and these are what um, different people will, will suggest will, uh, that this passage is, is speaking about. Number one, it's a real loss of salvation. This is offered by different Christians, different groups. Uh, what this passage is speaking about is you really can lose your salvation. So what that means is then that these people that are being addressed are really saved or were really saved. They're believers. The passage itself deals with the actual loss of salvation. Thirdly, those who lose their salvation can never be saved again. Now, at least for those who would offer this understanding of the passage, they're consistent. 
if in fact teaching a, a truly born again saved person can lose their salvation, um, then they can never be saved again. So at least it's consistent. But the passage in point number one, standard interpretation, uh, is that this is speaking of believers, Christians. <coughs> and I use Christians now in, 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 the, in the context of a true born-again child of God. B, hypothetical loss of salvation would be the second interpretation. Again, the people were really saved. The passage deals with actual loss of salvation. So that's the same as point B or point two in the, in the first one, and I probably should have put one, two, three, four, five in ABC. But anyway, uh, so the passage deals with the actual loss of salvation. However, point number three in this <coughs> is that the if clause points to a hypothetical argument. I mentioned that earlier. Paul is not saying that the loss of salvation is possible. He's only saying that if it were, then it would be impossible to be saved again. Now, again, that's, that's, that's a teaching out there. In other words, this is not really going to happen. It can't happen. If it could happen, then these people lose their salvation. But it's only hypothetical. So it can't happen, it won't happen. <coughs> the third teaching is that of a spiritual castaway. The people were really saved. However, they did not really lose their salvation, but fell away from their service to God. In other words, this has nothing to do with one's salvation. Saved people cannot lose their salvation. This has to do with their being able to serve God. So if they fall away, uh, they lose their service, but they're still saved. Point number three in, in, in the spiritual castaway is the impossibility deals with the fact that they are spiritual castaways. 1 Corinthians 9.27 is referred to and can no longer return to the perfect will of God in their lives and will never be much used of God. So again, it saved people, but it's not dealing with losing your salvation. It's dealing with being a castaway from God's perfect will for your life and serving him. And if you get to that point because of your sin, you cannot be brought back to the perfect will of God that he wanted in full service of God. That's the teaching out there. Fourth one is the excommunicated castaway. The people were really saved. However, they did not really lose their salvation, but fell away from God by committing a major sin. So again, these people are saved. They're true, born, true children of God. It's not dealing with losing your salvation, but they committed some kind of major sin, and thus they uh, fell away from God. Not salvationally. They're still a child of God but in serving God and what God can do through them. Thus, they are, point number three under this, castaways. And although they will go to heaven, they should never be received back into the church. So this is one who has gotten into major sin, went through church discipline, 
uh, Matthew chapter 18, has been excommunicated uh, and cast away, and so they're uh, never to be received back into the church and into fellowship again. They're going to heaven, but they're not to be received into the church fellowship. Now, the common denominator with these first four points is what? They're all saved. They're all saved. <clears throat> the fifth position is this. It's the lost apostate, which is the one that I believe is the correct one. The people were never truly saved. However, they were received into the church as saved and participated in a very active way as believers. Now, the only thing that I would address in this, in the context of Hebrews, <coughs> um, I don't think it's so much receiving them into the church, but Jewish people falling back under the law, not coming fully out of Judaism. But that, that is, is a minor detail. So the fifth position is that they're not saved, never were truly saved. They were received into the church because they were professing believers and participated in a very active way as believers. Now you can, we all know of uh, probably of people down through the years uh, who were or would fill this bill, this characteristic. Three, their falling ways simply proved that they were never truly saved. <coughs> and then finally, point number four, the impossibility of their repentance deals with two things. Number one, <coughs> their return after having claimed to have been saved and truly participating as a believer, and after then having fully and outwardly rejecting the truth of the gospel, would make a mockery of the gospel of Christ. Christ would be seen as being crucified a second time. In other words, they're, they're, if, if their being received again would make a mockery of what Christ did. And secondly then, God is declaring that he will not participate in calling them back to the gospel. They have made a mockery of his offer and have gone to a point that he will no longer deal with them. That, I think, is this the correct position. But here, here's the thing. I have the note down here. Since the first four interpretations begin with the premise that the people in verse 4 are saved, and really goes back, but we're dealing with 4 through 8, if one can establish that these people are lost people who have become apostates, obviously then the first four positions are wrong. If this is a lost person being addressed here, a professing believer, obviously then the first four standard interpretations are wrong. Now, I think we established that last week, uh, and that being the case. But... Let's move on in this passage. And what we're looking at, go, go back to um, page one, because we, we didn't read the ver three verses. We've read part of two of them. Look at four through six. For it is impossible 
For those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him, the Son of God, Jesus, to an open shame. Now, I think just by reading this, you can understand why some believe that it's speaking of a child of God. Uh, look at verse 6. They were once enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. They have tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the world to come. I mean, you look at that and say, what? Well, these people got to be saved, right? Yes? You're afraid to nod your head because I've said they're not. But anyway, um, you look at the wording there. Um, and, 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 you know, you can walk away if you just read it and say, yeah, they're, they're, they're obviously saved. You know, just the, the verbiage that's used there uh, and what takes place. So if they shall fall away, they, they can't be brought back to the repentance and, and they put Jesus to an open shame. So go back to the uh, second page then. To understand this passage, there are some basic truths we need to remind ourselves of about this book and this passage. And uh, in, this, in this particular portion of Hebrews, I've been giving a lot of quotes of different people. <coughs> I want you to understand that there are numbers of people who believe that uh, these are lost people. Hebrews, point number one. Hebrews, and I've mentioned this, this is something I've written. Hebrews was addressed to Jewish people who were under persecution and in danger of falling back to the practices of the Mosaic Covenant, temple worship, sacrifices, the priesthood, and so on. The Jewish people had professed a belief in Jesus, but some were not really saved even though they gave lip service to the Messiahship of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of application to this in our world today. Uh, you will find a lot of people who give lip service to Jesus, but they're not truly saved. And the Bible speaks of that over and over again. It speaks of the wheat and tares growing up together in the church age, the good and the bad, saved and the unsaved. Um, it, it talks, Paul warns the, uh, the Ephesian church that to beware because there'll be grievous wolves that will uh, enter in. But it also says, and some will rise up among you. Well, if they rise up among you, that means they were in your midst. You thought they were believers, but they're not. Uh, there's lots of teaching to this extent. <coughs> Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <clears throat> on um, a manuscript on the five warnings of Hebrews said this. A study of the five warnings of the book of Hebrews is important for two reasons. The first reason is that these are the passages which people generally use to teach that one can lose one's salvation. And Hebrews 6 is probably the primary one. Second, these passages 
are usually interpreted from a modern Gentile perspective, even by those who believe in eternal security. But a proper understanding of these scriptures requires viewing them from the Jewish perspective of the first century. So they might be applicable today, but in interpreting, interpreting them, we have to understand the context of the first century. Again, Kenneth Wiest. We will need to remind ourselves again of the historical background and analysis of the book and the purpose of the author in writing it. <clears throat> he was writing to the visible, professing church made up of saved and unsaved. There is no greeting to the saints like we find in most of the epistles. The concern of the writer is with those of the unsaved Jewish readers who are under stress of persecution were in danger of renouncing their professed faith in Messiah and returning to the abrogated sacrifices of the First Testament, those that were done away with. These he repeatedly warns, these he repeatedly warns against this act, these professing believers, and repeatedly exhorts them to go on to faith in the New Testament sacrifice, Messiah. Look at page three. Secondly, <clears throat> there are five warning passages. <clears throat> Consistency argues that we understand these warnings as addressed to the same group of people. If one is to unsaved professing believers, it makes sense that all of them would be. Five warning passages. All the warnings are addressed to professing Jewish believers, warning them to come to true saving faith in Jesus. And if you remember back in, in Hebrews 4.2, we saw the difference. Look at Hebrews 4.2, if you want to open your Bible. This is in the midst of one of the warning passages. Here's what it says. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. <clears throat> but the word preached did not profit them. Why? not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See the us and the them? The gospel was preached to two groups of people. Us, them. It didn't profit them. Why? They didn't believe it. They didn't, they didn't have faith. It, it was good for us. Why? Because we believed it. There very clearly are the two groups of people in the book of Hebrews. Point number three. <clears throat> Hebrews 6.1 tells the readers to leave behind the elementary teachings and go on. The context of the book and the warning passages can't be referring to New Testament truth. It must be referring to the need to leave Old Testament truth and go on to New Testament truth, specifically dealing with sacrifice. In this case, the New Testament truth of sacrifice is Jesus. Four, perfection. In this context, in the book of Hebrews and other places outside of Hebrews also, <clears throat> is used of the sacrifice of Christ and salvation. 
not Christian maturity. You know, when it says go on to perfection, you know, we, we can think, well, that means we need to mature and grow up. And, and we looked last week at the 10 different times this word perfection or perfected is used in Hebrews. Every single time. Three times, it's always used of salvation. <clears throat> Three times it's used of Jesus and getting salvation as the perfect Lamb of God for us. Seven times it teaches the need of salvation. It's never speaking of Christian maturity. Never. Five. Many teach this is teach speaking of unsaved people. And I put down some of them here. Can't use. <clears throat> the view many, including myself, hold is that those who fall away are not true believers, but rather men and women who only appear so. They are people who have received a thorough exposure to the gospel. For example, the catechized Jewish believers of the, uh, of the preceding verses and have made an ostensible profession of faith and have been received into the fellowship of God's people. However, at a later point, they have abandoned their profession, even becoming opponents of, good, of Christ. John MacArthur highlights the same people. Same point. People can go to church for years and hear the gospel over and over again, even to be faithful church members, and never really make a commitment to Jesus Christ. That kind of person is addressed here. Persistent rejection of Christ may result in such persons passing the point of no return spiritually, of losing forever the opportunity of salvation. He eventually follows his evil heart of unbelief and turns his back forever on the living God. E. Schuller English appraises these immunized Christians. Quote, some are enlightened as to the truth, or are even stirred by it, but you do yet do not embrace it within their hearts. They may profess to be Christians, but they do not have saving faith. Later he adds this. These were never Christians. They were those who had ample opportunity to become children of God in Christ through faith, who have even professed to be converted, but they have turned away to their condemnation. Lewis Berry Schaefer, president of the respected Dallas Theological Seminary, at its beginnings in 1924, until his death in 1952, said, of, said this, the, the, the passage is not a warning to Christians to, to secure their salvation, but rather is addressed to those who profess faith without reality. For if they turn from their profession in Christ, they will be lost. And he made a kindred evaluation of the companion, companion passage in Hebrews 10, best interpreted, as a warning to those who hear the gospel that they not deliberately turn away from it. Samuel Riddout examined the fivefold description of those described in this passage and concluded, not one of them speaks of justification or of the new birth or of peace with God. That's the first three verses, by the way, of Hebrews 6. You know, putting aside repentance and the laying on of hands and, and all of that that fivefold description. 
He says, not one of those descriptions speaks of justification of the new birth or peace with God. Not one of the expressions in this passage speaks of the life of the soul. They all speak of the outward privileges of Christianity into which these Hebrew professors have been introduced. In short, for a time they looked like Christians, acted like Christians, but in reality, they had fallen short of the mark. They're professing believers. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, writing in the Westminster Theological Journal on this theme, says this. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and the, and the period of apostasy, that's the title of the article, pictures the situation. They had come a significant way toward real faith in Christ, but not far enough, he said again. What he has reason to fear is that some people among them who have professed Christian faith, enjoyed Christian fellowship, and engaged in Christian witness may prove to be hypocrites, enemies of Christ. And by turning away from the light they have known, show that they do not belong to God's people at all. The Puritan, John Owen, summed it up this way. The persons here intended are not true and sincere believers. The 17th century writer William Googe called Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, a passage about falling into apostasy and said first verse 4 described five steps on which apostates may ascend towards salvation without ever receiving it. And he described the people in this passage as Hypocrites. The noted prophecy student, consulting editor of the Schofield Reference Bible, William Pettingill, bluntly stated it this way. This passage does not refer to Christians at all. While he understood it to primarily reference Israel as a nation, he did add, the principle is also true of the Gentiles. In his question and answer book, he said, quote, the things mentioned in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 are not the things that accompany salvation. Verse 9 of this chapter. He was very clear on that. Point number 6. And we still haven't gotten into the heart of this, uh, the verses themselves, which we will shortly. The words used in verses 4 through 6 are never used in the rest of the New Testament to speak of one who is saved. Never used. Should we then understand them in this way? I would say no. If, if they have never been used in the rest of the New Testament to speak of a saved person, a truly born-again person, I would submit we shouldn't use them here. John MacArthur goes on and says this. First of all, we should notice that this passage makes no reference at all to salvation. There is no mention of justification, sanctification, the new birth, or regeneration. Those who have been once enlightened are not spoken of as born again, made holy or made righteous, None of the normal New Testament 
terminology for salvation is used. In fact, no term used here is ever used elsewhere in the New Testament for salvation. And none should be taken to refer to it in this passage. Point number seven. <clears throat> the illustration of verses seven and eight, which we'll look at shortly, Lord willing, underlines this understanding of the passage as speaking of professing believers never were saved. Those who respond to the gospel, verse 7, bring forth herbs, received from blessing from God are saved. Those who bear thorns and briars are rejected or not saved will end up in hell. We're going to look at 7 and 8 shortly. But the illustration of 7 and 8 corroborates this understanding of 4 through 6, yea, even going back to the beginning of chapter 6 and the end of chapter 5. Point number eight. Verse nine seems to clinch the understanding that this passage is speaking to unsaved people. What verse nine says of Hebrews six, and that's where we'll look at next week or, or pick it up uh, anyway. But Hebrews six, verse nine says this. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. There's the contrast. He's speaking to a group that need to come to salvation. If they fall away, they can't be renewed again to repentance. And then in verse 9, he turns around to the other group, true believers. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you in contrast to the previous people, that you will bring forth things that accompany salvation. And we will look at that, Lord willing, next week. Now, so let's consider these eight verses, these four verses. Um, five verses. Four through six, seven and eight. It starts out, for it is impossible now, the people who knowingly reject the truth and go back to their old religious system cannot be saved. So, <clears throat> these are unbelievers. And if they return to the Mosaic law, if they return to the old system, if they turn their back on Jesus, in other words, they go back, they have reached the point where they cannot be saved. It is impossible. Now, People debate, can this be done in today's world? Um, this is a unique situation, certainly. There were Jewish professing believers. The temple was still standing. This was the things of God, but under the old covenant. And these people were in danger. Some will say, no, this was unique to the first century and can't happen today. Others, like we saw in some of these quotes, say it could happen today. That if somebody, Jew or Gentile, it really doesn't matter, comes out of the world and gets involved in Christian life, even making a profession of faith, but is not saved 
if he leaves that, he can't be brought back to repentance again. You know, over the past, I don't know, two or three months, you know, I've mentioned a few times uh, that professor in Israel, somebody asked me about that, Reggie did earlier. This is a man who graduated from a Bible college. This is a man for the last, I don't remember how long, 20 plus years, I think, taught in Israel, who recently, in March, publicly came out that he didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He didn't believe in the triunity of God. He believed that Jesus was, was the Messiah, but just a man. <clears throat> According to what he said, he has struggled his entire life with accepting the Christian doctrinal teaching that Jesus is truly God and that God is revealed as a triune God, as a trinity. Well, that tells me there's, there's, there's a good likelihood that he was never saved to begin with. You cannot deny basic, foundational, cardinal doctrines and be saved, which he has. Many people have tried to reason with him from the scripture, and all have failed. Is he this person in Hebrews chapter 6? He has walked away from Jesus, possibly. If, if, if that is the case, He's, 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 he's reached the, the, the point then. He can't be brought back to salvation. He'll, he'll forever wallow in his ignorance of Scripture, his delusion of Scripture, and can't be saved. Um, it's possible. I'm not God. I wouldn't say that is the case for sure. Uh, but it is a scary position to be in. And we all know of people who have attended church for many, many years then ultimately left it and went back to the world. We're going to look at some of those passages. But that person who does leave and goes away from the Lord and denies it and goes back to an old religious system, a false religious system, and, and in this case, even though given by God, it's false in the sense it can't save. Jesus is the completion of all that God promised. It's impossible for them to be saved. Now, look at the next phrase. For those who were once enlightened. Now, I know this can be a, a, a tricky, a number of these phrases as we go on can be tricky in trying to understand this. But to be once enlightened doesn't mean that they embrace that light. Robert Sumner, in his commentary on Hebrews, said this. The word translated once, Greek hapax, is literally once for all. As Alford, he was a Greek expert, notes, indicating that the process needs not or admit, admits not repetition. If once in the sense of occasion has been meant, the Greek pote would have been used. Hapax <clears throat> is the same word used later in the book to describe the once for all 
sacrifice that Christ made to put away sin. So obviously when Christ once for all, that is a finality to that word once. The finality of death in Hebrews 9.27, the same word is used. And the end of the world in 12.26 and 27. It is simply saying that the Holy Spirit, whose purpose and ministry it is, to convict the lost of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We've looked many times at that passage, John 16, 8 through 11. Had perfectly done his job. He had so enlightened hearts and minds that they thoroughly knew and understood the gospel. The so great salvation spoken of earlier. See, when you read John 16, 8 through 11, when, this, when Jesus said, I'm going uh, and I need to go because the Comforter has to come, the Holy Spirit, and when the Comforter, the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That, that's the unsaved people of the world. That says nowhere in that passage that they will accept that conviction. They will accept that revelation, that illumination. See, the Spirit of God's job, his pre-salvation ministry, is to illuminate unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. When the Spirit of the Lord has come, when the Spirit of God has come, he will convict the Comforter, the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. These people were enlightened. But again, that passage doesn't say that they embrace that enlightenment. But if you are truly brought to conviction by the Spirit of God, the inference or the implication of that is you understand the truth about Jesus. But there's no irresistible whatever here. <clears throat> Dean Henry Alford, after giving the usage of enlightened, said this, in all these places, the sense is to bring to light or cast light upon. Here it implies taught by the preaching of the word of God. This is from the Greek New Testament, Henry Alford, Dean Henry Alford. In other words, to cast light on, to make, to illuminate, to make known. And here it's through the teaching of the word of God. So they were once enlightened. They were brought to that point of enlightenment. It's a finality in these people's lives. If they have so come to that point in their life that they have been enlightened, illuminated, uh, the truth of, the war, uh, of Jesus has been made known to them to the point that there's no more that the Spirit of God can do in enlightening them, if they walk away, they can't be saved. But what the, what the point is, it's casting light upon. It's bringing light to it. And the Spirit of God is enlightening these people about the truth uh, of Jesus and what he has done for them. W.E. Vine wrote this. These facts would be true in regard to all those Hebrews who had been influenced by the testimony and power of the gospel, but had not done more than make a profession of faith and were inclined to return to Judaism. I would call it mosaism, but regardless. The power of which remained very strong among the people. And you can understand why. They'd had the temple for centuries. 
they were commanded by God to bring sacrifices. You want us to give all this up? There is nothing, Vine says, in the details in verses 4 and 5. But what, could, but what could take place in the experience of one who was drawn to Christianity <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> without being born again <coughs> and becoming possessed of eternal life? To be enlightened comes short of conversion. To taste of the heavenly gift is far short, and where that's the next phrase, is far short of receiving it in its fullness. To be a partaker of the Holy Spirit is not becoming indwelt by him through faith in Christ. So just because it says they were once enlightened doesn't mean they're saved. It's not the intent here. But they were brought under <clears throat> illumination, understanding, light being cast on who Jesus is, what he has done for them. And that was done by the Holy Spirit. There are people like that today. You know, I, I've shared with you, remember I shared with you, uh, his name was Rob Sumner. <laughs> I think his name was Rob Sumner because you got a Robert Sumner here, but uh, I think it was the same name. He used to work for Levitt's Furniture years ago, a Jewish man, and I worked with him for two years. And, and at the end of it, I went through the warning passages in Hebrews because I had just gotten to the end of the rope. I, I didn't know what else to do to try to get this man to see that he needed to be saved. Uh, his, he and his wife came to a Passover Seder after uh, we had talked about, I forget which warning passage it was. And she came up to me prior to the Seder and said, what did you tell my husband this week? After you were finished with your Bible study, he came home and he was just agitated to no end. He couldn't sit down. He paced up and down. He kept on saying, I have to call my rabbi. I have to call my rabbi. And he couldn't get any rest. And I, and I said, well, what happened, I believe, is that he was under true conviction, enlightenment by the Holy Spirit and refused to come. <clears throat> I, I, last I heard, he was in the Baha'i faith. But I have to believe that Rob really understood. And the only way you really understand is if the Holy Spirit enlightens you. That's these people here. But they're not saved. They've just been enlightened about it. Then they have tasted of the heavenly gift. <clears throat> they tasted, they did not drink, it did not have its full effect. There you have this big banquet laid out before you. Okay, you can take one nibble, one taste. You know, that is not satisfying whatsoever. You want to take the whole thing. That's the whole point here, or the whole thought. Uh, they have tasted of the heavenly gift. The heavenly gift here is salvation through a person, through Jesus, and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they have tasted of the reality of what it means to have the Spirit of God working in their life and having God work in their life. They've tasted of that. Hebrews 2.9 <clears throat> says this. We read this when we got, we're in chapter 2. But we see Jesus, 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for how many people? Every man. Jesus died for all. Every man. But here's the problem. Look at 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, Jesus' death provided forgiveness for the sins of all the world. But it's not efficient for those who reject it. It is sufficient for everybody. Jesus' death covers the sins of all humanity forever. But it is only efficient for those who believe in him. 1 Timothy 4.10 puts this this way. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. He's the Savior. You can, you can, we, we prayed for unsaved people earlier. We prayed for George and Gerald Allen and Frank Newton and others who are not saved. Jesus is their Savior. He died for them. There is no other Savior for them. But it is not efficient for them because they've never responded to the gospel. They've never accepted him. It's only efficient, efficient for those who receive him. It is sufficient for the whole world. It's only efficient for those who accept him. See, there are a lot of people out there, or some anyway, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They come to church, they hear a sermon, and they come every week for week after week after week. Maybe they come to a Bible study. And they are convicted of the truth Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And they are convicted by the Holy Spirit of the, of the truth, but they never bend their knee to Jesus. They never respond, or they become hard in their heart. They've tasted of the truth. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. The Spirit of God has actually, literally worked in their life. I mean, God from heaven, the Spirit of God has worked in their life, but they've only tasted of it. They have not come into the fullness of what God has for his children. They've just tasted. They're not believers. So it's just nibbling from the outside, not sitting at the banquet table, as it were. So they've tasted the heavenly gift. doesn't mean they are saved. Then look at the next page, page 4. Um, page, page five, thank you. Page five. And we're made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember when we looked at Hebrews um, 2.14. Now, partakers here is uh, medicos. Medicos. Uh, remember when we looked at Hebrews 2.14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. 
partakers of flesh and blood. Speaking about us. Koinonia. Both of these mean to share with others, to share, to participate. But when it talks of Jesus taking part of flesh and blood, he took part of the same. It's meteko, the same word we have used here in Hebrews chapter 6. And the difference is that we belong to flesh and blood. Jesus, although we had flesh and blood, really didn't belong because he was perfect. Uh, the illustration that I've never forgotten was shared to me by a Greek young man years ago, believer, who put it this way. He said, if I invite you to my home for dinner and you come in, we are both going to enjoy and partake of the hospitality of the home, the heat or the air conditioning, the food, the fellowship. We all partake of the same thing. But when all is said and done, you leave. You're just partaking temporarily. You don't really belong here. Me? I belong here. I live here. And I stay. But you leave. That's the difference. They both partook of it, but one really belonged and the other didn't. We belong to everything that comes with flesh and blood. Jesus took part of flesh and blood, but doesn't belong because he doesn't have a sin nature. He was perfect. Well, that metico took part of the same, doesn't really belong, in other words, even though you partake of it, is the same word used here, uh, where we were made partaker, and these were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. These are unsaved people. At what, when were they made partakers of the Holy Ghost? In the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit's pre-salvation ministry, when the Spirit of God has come into the world, what will he do? He'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. So there, they partook of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Did they belong to the Holy Spirit? No. They just partook of what he would do. You find that word... In the Greek, in Luke 5, 7, 1 Corinthians 9, 10, Hebrews 1, 9, and so on. It simply means one who has participated with another in a common activity. This is how they were partakers of the Holy Spirit. These Hebrews readily listened to the word of God, but they were not saved. They were brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8 through 11, we've mentioned that. When the Spirit of God has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. But look at Acts 7.51. Ye stiff-necked stiff and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. If you resist something, you have been actively, um, what's the word I want to use? You have been actively confronted by that individual, Right? You know, if someone's coming to rob you and you resist that person, you have put up some kind of defense, right? To prevent that individual from robbing you. So if you resist the Holy Spirit, that means the Holy Spirit has tried to get through to you, but you have resisted him. That means an actual act of resisting the Spirit of God. And this is convicting them of truth. 
It can be done. 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22. This is unbelievers. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is not saving knowledge. This is Holy Spirit conviction. They found out about Jesus. They left the pollutions of the world. But then notice what it says. They are again entangled therein. And overcome. So here's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A believer cannot become, cannot be overcome by the world. We can fall back into sin, but the Spirit of God will not let the world overcome us. Discipline. Holy Spirit, conviction and correction and discipline, ultimately to the sin unto death. These people were overcome because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered on them. It had been better they had never heard about salvation, never heard about Jesus, than after they have heard about him to turn from him and the commandment to be saved. And then the illustration is this which cements this understanding. It has happened unto them, those who were enlightened, who came to a knowledge of Jesus, not saving, but turned back to the world and overcome, better than they had never known. It has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again. If a dog vomits, and you don't stop that dog, what's the dog going to do? Why does a dog turn around and eat what he is just vomiting. You, you don't do that, do you? No. Hopefully. Why does a dog turn around and eat its vomit? It's a dog. It's the only nature. It's the nature of a dog. The second illustration. And the pig that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You can take a pig out of the pig pen. You can wash it up. You can put a nice coat and tie on it. You can take it to church on Sunday morning. And after you leave church and you let that pig go, where is it going? Right back to the pig pen. Right back to the mud. Why? Because he's a pig. That's the nature of a pig. That's the nature of the dog. It's happened unto these people in the same way to the dog and the pig. It's their nature. They only have one nature. And that takes them back to the world and they are overcome. So what he's talking about these people. There are people who've come out of the world, heard the message, understood by Spirit, Holy Spirit conviction that this is true, rejected it. They then go back into the world and they're overcome because they have no power to resist it. Now, it doesn't mean they're lost. I have heard so many testimonies. You know, well, I know little Johnny was saved when he was four or five or six. Well, I didn't know you had the ability to read a human heart, but that's, you know. Well, I know my son. But when he became a teenager, you know, he turned away from God. He turned away from the church. And, uh, and when he got out of my house and out of, out of high school, he just, you know, he was running around with women and drinking and, you know. Uh, but I know he's saved because at the age of four, he made this prayer. And then at the age of 29 or 32, you know, he got right with God. And wow, what a difference in his life. You know, 
you know what happened to, to Johnny? He never got saved at four. He got saved at 29. His life changed. If your child grew up as a Christian and made a profession of faith and, you know, but walked away from it and is living like the devil, that's because he's exhibiting the genes of his father, the devil. He's not saved. That's what it's saying right here. And if he never gets saved, the latter end is worse than the beginning. Better that they had never known. Because people will ultimately be judged at the great white throne judgment primarily, not only, but primarily on how much light they have received and rejected. And the Bible speaks of different levels of punishment in hell. Which means there has to be the ability to respond or not to respond to whatever degree of light that you have and then rejected it. That's these people. So the partaking of the Holy Spirit is only the pre-salvation work. They're not saved. They have tasted the good word of God. Same thing above as they tasted. They didn't eat it. They didn't swallow it. They didn't absorb it. They didn't internalize it. They just tasted it. Because they came into a situation, they heard the preaching of the word of God, the teaching of the word of God, they only tasted it. And they tasted the powers of the world to come. In, in, in the case of these Jewish people, they had seen miracles. Possibly through the ministry of Jesus. Almost certainly through the ministry of the apostles. Read the book of Acts and all the miracles that took place. They, 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 they tasted the powers of the world to come. But tasted there in the sense... Um, the Holy Spirit working in their life. When, when, when God changes the world, the Spirit of God changes the world in the, in the world to come, a perfect environment. They again just taste it. So they had so much light, so much illumination, so much revelation, so much understanding brought by the Holy Spirit, but they rejected it. And so the final phrase, if these people, if they <clears throat> shall fall away, in other words, they don't come on to true salvation. To renew them again onto repentance is impossible. Why? Because they've crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him, Jesus, to an open shame. <clears throat> it can probably happen today, is my guess this type of thing. We don't know it with any particular person when it does. I think it can happen today, though, that you can come out of the world, be convicted of the truth, hear over and over and over again about Jesus and what he has done, and for whatever reason say, but not for me. And ultimately, you can go back to the world, and it's possible at a point in time, God will say, fine, have it your way. Kind of like what happened in the wilderness, Psalm 106. They want to go back to Egypt. They murmured. They'd seen all the miracles. God said, okay. So he gave them the desires of their heart, but sent leanness onto their soul. They couldn't be saved. Couldn't respond.
I think it can happen today. But we cannot say to whom or when it will happen. But we know every one of us knows people just like this. Maybe they've, they're beyond the pale. Maybe they've passed the point of no return. Maybe they've gotten to the point where God says, okay, you kept on saying no, 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 have it your way. Because if the Holy Spirit will not draw you, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> and if the Holy Spirit is not drawing you, you have no interest in Christianity. You may have interest in Baha'i or Buddhism or atheism or a hundred other different things out there, but you won't have any interest in real spiritual truth, the Bible and the Word of God. Then look at the illustration. <clears throat> Verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is near to cursing, whose end is to be burned. Israel was primarily an agrarian, agricultural society. It, was, it is very common in Scripture to use agricultural illustrations. I want to look at, quickly as possible, three of them. Go back to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 is an offer of the gospel. <clears throat> In the first part of chapter 55, you have the, the offer. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat, ye come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And, and, and the first three verses, you have the offer. If you want to be saved, if you thirst, if you hunger, you can come. In verses 4, down through verse 6, and even 7, but verses 4 and 5 for sure, you have the person of the message. Verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people. The people of the Jewish people. Oh, he's a leader and commander of the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation, Gentiles, Goyim, <clears throat> that thou knowest not nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee, the leader of the people, and so on. Uh, and so anyone who thirsts can come. We have to come to the leader, the commander, Jesus. And we come, we come in Repentance and faith, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Then look at verse 10. And by the way, you know, when it talks about, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, this is verse 8. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. That's faith. We can't understand God. We can't figure out God. We cannot mind the depths of an eternal God, uh, a, a temporal um, person cannot mind the depths of the majesty of the holiness of God. As the heavens are higher than us, so is his ways higher. 
faith belief. And so the whole context of chapter 55 is salvation. And then he gives the illustration in verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not thither but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Now here he uses a very common illustration. You plant a seed, the rain comes down, the sun shines on it, and after a period of time, what happens? You have fruit, a plant and then fruit. And ultimately, it gives bread to the eater. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. The context of this passage is that the word of God, like that seed that is planted in the rain and the sun, will ultimately bring forth fruit for the eater. So the word of God, when it, it re, comes into the heart of somebody who truly wants it and thirsts for it and receives it and turns from his wicked way and calls upon the name of the Lord in faith, his life will be changed. And verses 12 and 13 talks about a changed life. For he shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. But verse 11, verse 10, is using the agricultural illustration. Go over to the book of Jeremiah in the next, and, and there's many of these in Scripture. Um, but look at Jeremiah chapter 4. Same type of thing. And we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, sow not among thorns. The ground is hard. Break it up. Don't throw your seed among thorns. What will happen if you throw your seed among thorns? Thorns is going to choke it. Remember who used this type, same type of illustration? Well, if you don't, we're going to look at it shortly. Jesus did. Don't throw your seed among the thorns, but break up the ground first. You want very, you, you, you don't want hard soil. In biblical days, if you would throw that seed onto a hard soil, a beaten down path, what's going to happen to that seed? It's going to sit there or the birds will come and eat it. You've got to break up the ground so the seed can drop in and take root. But don't throw it into the thorns because it'll choke it. So he says, break up the fallow ground, sow not among thorns, circumcise you, your, yourselves, Lord, take away the foreskins of your heart. Be saved. The whole context. But he uses an agricultural illustration. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Where Jesus now uses the same illustration that is used over and over in the word of God. And almost every, most of the context that it's used is used of salvation. And in, in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. The same day when Jesus out of the house sat by the seaside, great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. He spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. So get the picture. Biblical times, you didn't have, what's the machine they use today? Not the, um, the planter, thank you. you know, not, the, not the combine. Combine harvest is, you know. The planter, you know, you've seen pictures, they put, you know, runs down and 
and this thing goes around and digs a hole and plants the seed, and digs a hole and plants the seed and covers it up. They didn't have that in biblical times. They had a sower, Johnny Appleseed. Remember, remember old, good old Johnny? You know, he had this bag of apple seeds, and he'd go walking through the, the grounds and take out and just, you know, fling out the seeds. Well, that's what it's talking about here in this parable. Sower went forth to sow. When he sowed, and there are four types of soil. Some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowl came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and wherefore with they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root. They withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit. Who have the ears to hear, let him hear. And he goes on, Jesus does, says, the, the sower is the person that goes out and shares the word of God. And there are four types of soil. <clears throat> the wayside, the stony place, the thorns, and the good soil. The thorns, it'll choke it. The stony place, it doesn't take root. There's only one good soil that will bring forth fruit. The only good soil, spiritually speaking, is the heart that is soft and receptive and receives the word of God and if we are truly saved, we will bring forth fruit. In that context, this is again what Hebrews 6, 7 and 8 says. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receive blessing from God. If you truly receive the word of God and call on the name of the Lord, you will receive blessing. In contrast, that which bears thorns and briars is rejected as nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burnt. If it's among the thorns and the briars, it's worthless. There's a good seed, there's a bad seed. There's the saved, there's the unsaved. He is now addressing the unsaved, whose end is to be burnt. In verse 9, he will turn and address the saved. This passage has nothing whatsoever to do with a Christian losing their salvation. It is impossible. It is addressed to unsaved people professing believers and warning them, make sure you come to the Lord and get saved. Joyce? Made a profession. And then when they became uh, an adult, they just said they just didn't want to do it anymore. They just like to talk about it. Can you pray for that person? Certainly. See, we don't know if they have gone beyond the reach of the grace of God. We don't know in any individual's case. Um, there are people who, just like that, and later in life have been saved and really been saved come back to the Lord. Certainly pray for that person because we don't know when God has said, you're through. It's impossible. Now, in this case, in Hebrews, we know if they left, it's impossible. So pray for that person 
Um, but people, I believe, can definitely reach that point that ultimately God will say, okay, it's over. We just don't know. We might think we know, but we don't know. So that's in the providence of God. That's not in our determination. So we, I always say there's always hope for somebody as long as they're living. You know, maybe they've reached that point, but I don't know. I, I'm not God. I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't say for sure. But there is certainly that potential of that person reaching the point or of a person reaching the point that if the Holy Spirit is removed, they can't be saved because they're not convicted. They won't be convicted. Um, so, yes, pray for them. Yes. Uh, I don't want to sound this is a word of encouragement exactly, but uh, I did that when I grew up. I was uh, saved when I was like nine. As I got older, I started uh, doing things I should and, and use proper terminology. You made a profession when you were nine. And maybe you were saved, but uh, go ahead. Let me go ahead and finish. Uh, I started, uh, started getting a little loose around the edges. And, and then I went to college, and I ended up being convinced there wasn't a God at all. And for about a year, I, I considered myself, I thought I really knew the truth. And then one night, I, something, something happened, and all of a sudden I discovered that maybe I was wrong about things. And so I went back and baptized I figured I wasn't sure the first one took too good and you know you might but anyway uh, and I'm not anyway and, and I'm just saying that mine's been an up and down path yeah. <coughs> and what we need to do in any and all of our lives is examine our life not based on our experience but what the word of God teaches if you're truly saved and you fall away, you cannot fall away and be overcome because the Spirit of God, discipline, when we get to Hebrews 12, it talks about discipline, the discipline of believer. And if you be without discipline, where all are partakers, it says, then the, 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 I love the King James English sometimes, then you're a bastard, <laughs> you know. You're not God's child. Um, the whole point is, if you were truly saved, you would be under conviction during that time. And God would, one of two things would happen. And we'll look at that when we get to the Hebrews 12. God, you'll either be brought back to the Lord or he will kill you and take you home. Now, you came back to the Lord. Um, but there's then the other possibility. You just made a profession. And when you were 22, 23, whatever age you were, you woke up and said, you know what? There is a God. He died for me. And you're, 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 you're returning to the Lord is actually your salvation. One of, one, or, one of those two scenarios is true, not both. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah, he was an evangelist. No, no, not Billy Sunday. Um, I know who you're talking about. They were, they were tight. Yeah, I know the story. Yeah, um, he actually started the ministry. This man did. He called it, I think it's called Youth for Christ. Mm -hmm. This is back in the 40s. And in the early 50s, 
50s, he invited Billy Graham to join that ministry, which he did. And then they two went to Europe uh, on their evangelical crusades. And my understanding was, was that this man was actually a better preacher than Billy Graham was. And when they came back to, to the U.S., um, he went to one of these Ivy League schools. I that was Stanford or Harvard or one of those Ivy League schools. And after his experience there, he became an apostate. Yeah. And <clears throat> the rest, Templeton. I think it's Templeton. What's his first name? Templeton. And he ultimately um, established a prize for those who could refute religion or whatever, as I remember. I don't remember his first name. But Templeton went this way and became an apostate, and Graham became, you know, this great preacher and evangelist and so on. Um, that's a good illustration. Templeton was never saved. And he, and, and he ultimately left the faith, had no desire to come back. He may be, he may be dead, probably is dead today, I would, I would guess. But that's a good illustration. But when you examine somebody, whether it be yourself and your life or somebody else, You've got to make sure it's based on the Word of God, not your experience. Baptism doesn't save you. Um, and if you walked away from the Lord and you weren't saved and you got into the world uh, and, and you got religious again and got rebaptized, you're just a, you're just a second wet sinner going to hell. Um, you know, you're saved by grace through faith. And I'm not saying you're not saved, don't get me wrong. Uh, but you've got to base it on the Word of God. Not on our life's experience, you know, well, and, and not on your children. Well, well, Johnny loved the Lord, and he, he memorized verses, and he, was, he always wanted to go to church, and he wanted to sing the songs, and he loved vacation Bible school. But, but now Johnny is living like the devil. He's grown up, he's left the house, he's drinking, he's smoking, he's running around with women. But I know he's saved because back when he was six, he loved to go to VBS and sing the Bible song. No, look at the scripture. So, and, and we're not perfect. We don't know a heart, but we can analyze people based on the word of God. And, I've, and we're going to close shortly. I've said this before, not, probably not in a long time. I can show you from the word of God that we have every right to tell somebody we think they're lost, but we have no right to tell someone, I think you're saved. Now that is completely opposite to what you hear in the Christian world. Somebody comes down and they make a profession, you know, tell them that, remember this hour, this moment that you accepted the Lord because Satan's going to come in and Satan's going to try to deceive you and think you that you're not a child of God. So tell him and confirm to that person that you're saved. You don't ever doubt it. Well, what if they just made a false profession as the Holy Spirit trying to get a hold of them and convicting them? They're going to say, well, I remember Mark told me that, you know, don't ever doubt it. No, we have every right <clears throat> to tell somebody we believe they're lost. And, and, and oftentimes we have every right to tell someone they are lost. I can tell that atheist, he's lost. <clears throat> but the closer you get to the line, as it were, it's more difficult to tell. But we have no right to tell someone they're a child of God. The only one who has that right is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will be, Romans 8, 
Spirit of God will bear witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. I have no right to tell you you're a child of God. I may think you're a child of God. I may believe you're a child of God. Uh, but only the Spirit of God can tell you. Um, and so only you can know for 100% for sure. I really believe my pastor is saved. But I only know for sure that I'm saved. So, Tom, you wanted to say something? Well, I know, God, God will use different avenues to bring each of us to the Lord. We all have different testimonies. <clears throat> but it's always through the Word of God and the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to our life and our accepting the Lord. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's close with a word of prayer. This is a very, very, what we looked at tonight, and I wanted to be as thorough as possible, and last week, a very controversial portion of the Word of God. Um, <clears throat> Go home and study it. Become convinced in your heart. To me, we can't lose our salvation. You know, this is speaking of unbelievers. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love and goodness. And uh, Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.